Now it's time for the Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle Tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, mantenganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, as I had told you back in, I think it was November, I've got a lot going on and don't have a lot of free time to create podcasts right now and really don't have a lot of free time to do much of anything, but I'm trying to still eke out some podcasts here and there. I did have an opportunity to go up to Disney World, as you heard on my last podcast, and uh, so I got some recording done there and that was kind of fun. And I have to say that was one of the most fun trips I've ever had to Disney. I've had some good ones, some okay ones, and then I've had some ridiculously fun ones, and this fell into that category. There was just something about the combination of the weather, my kids, the way we did things, kind of when we, what we went around and did, kind of the way we used our days and our time together, and it was sort of this bonding experience, fun time, just enjoying ourselves. I only had two of my three kids. It was kind of interesting that way. You know, sometimes you have to mix and match who gets to go to Disney. That's one of the perks, I guess, of living close by and being able to go there on, you know, a more regular basis. It's just that you get to pick and choose who gets to go with you. And, you know, sometimes it's based on their schedule, sometimes it's based on who got to go last, but this time it just worked out that way that the two of them got to go. So it was kind of fun. We had a really good time, and it's one of those totally memorable trips that I'll be remembering for a very long time as one of the all-time in my pantheon of great trips. That's going to be, you know, in the top two. It was just so much fun. There was something about it that just really was special, spending time with them like that. So anyway, I'm trying to get back in the world of podcasting and trying to get some things going again. Hopefully I'll get on a more regular schedule here and I can start getting some more things done. Uh, in the meantime, one of the other things I've been working on is I had a major server move. I moved over DisneyPodcast.net, DisneyWorldPodcast.net, and a couple of my other domains to a new server. And uh, I'll just say that never goes easily. There's never an easy way to do this. It always takes more work than you expect. It takes more time than you expect. You know, some of my apps had to be updated just to be able to accommodate that. Even though my apps need other updates, some of the things I had to do were just kind of off the hook, as they say. It was just ridiculous how much work went into it. But you will find that DisneyPodcast.net is now up and running on its new web server, so it's got a different look to it. I went ahead and made some changes. I'm working on some other changes to a couple of my other sites, and I'll communicate those as soon as they come around. And uh, I'm working on some more updates to my apps, you know, beyond just trying to fix it so that it continues to work. Uh, so that I can get those apps back up and running. I know it's taken some time and it's not as efficient as I'd like, but you know, like I say, other things get in the way sometimes. Anyway, all of that housekeeping out of the way, I wanted to circle around and talk about some of our long-missed Disney attractions. Uh, a couple of months ago, I had Gary on and we talked about some of the things that we miss at Disney World. And I asked all of you, what things do you miss at Disney World? And so I've been compiling a list. I've just been accepting the emails from you, and thank you for those of you who have reached out and told me the things that you miss. And I thought I'd collect them together and talk about the things that you miss about Disney World. And I can agree with about 99% of the things on this list, and I'll tell you why as I go through it. 
But I wanted to take you through by park and tell you about some of the other things that people have suggested that they miss. So let's start off with the Magic Kingdom. Uh, number one on the list that came up several times was the, the extraterrestrial alien encounter, and that's got the word terror in it. This was one of the more interesting attractions. Disney stepped outside the box and did something really different. And if you go through my show archives, you'll find that I did a podcast about this and the entirety of every show that's been in that space. But it's really interesting how the backstory goes on this, and I can understand why people miss this. It's, it was a really fun attraction. It was loosely based on the movie Aliens, and you can see the, the connection there between the alien and uh, what they created for the, uh, the alien in this attraction. And it really did go beyond the, bond, the, the typical bounds of what Disney does. It was a little bit more esoteric, a little bit more in your head. Uh, it wasn't really a thrill ride because it uses the same space that Stitch's Great Escape uses, but it was really different and a lot of fun. Next up that came in was the Skyway. That was the cable car ride uh, in the Magic Kingdom that went between basically where the bathrooms are behind the stage in Tomorrowland, right next to Space Mountain, all the way over to where the bathrooms are in uh, Fantasyland, where Rapunzel's uh, tower is. And the uh, cable car went back and forth, the Skyway went back and forth all day, every day, between those two destinations. It was a great place to get a view of the park, it was an original opening day attraction. Uh, it really was something kind of fun and special, and I miss it too. That's one that I really do miss. I, I thought it was a really neat way to kind of take a look at the park. It had that sort of, you know, slightly thrill aspect to it. Some people are, you know, have a little trouble with heights. It was an open air gondola, so you kind of went along and you, you know, kind of had a little bit of the fear factor for some people. So it was kind of neat. It was very different and very interesting. Next up would be Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Mr. Toad, of course, is, uh, was in the location where the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh is today. And it was a fun little ride through the story of um, Mr. Toad. And uh, Mr. Toad was uh, from the Wind in the Willows, and it went along with the uh, legend of Sweep Sleepy Hollow in a story that Disney put out in the 19, I guess it would have been the 1950s. And it follows uh, Mr. Toad's wild adventure. Uh, I don't think I've done a podcast about this one. I will have to do one in some time, at some point in the future because there's a little interesting story there that goes along with it and kind of how it all fits together. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This one, you know, this gets a lot of attention. This was one of the largest attractions Disney ever built. This was based on the uh, movie 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and originally under the, uh, on the book that Jules Verne wrote, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And this one is really kind of an interesting one. It was a water-based attraction that was really different and interesting and took a lot of work to put together. It was the largest attraction at Disney World. And uh, there's a whole backstory to it. I did do a podcast about this one. You can hear all about it. Uh, but it's a really interesting uh, thing that happened with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. You felt like you were riding along with Captain Nemo, even though it was a little bit cheesy and hard to maintain. But uh, it was, it, it's one that fans really miss. I've heard about this one coming up a lot. Even on some of the message boards that I'll visit once in a while, you'll still hear rumors about 20,000 Leagues, you know, rumblings about it, that people miss it. And they still want to talk about it. Now, they did create a similar type of attraction at Disneyland. And it was uh, slightly different in terms of it didn't have the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea theming, but it was very similar in the way that it ran. And it still runs in a similar sort of way. Though now it's a Nemo submarine voyage. So if you want to capture the moment and see what it's like and kind of get a feel for it, head over to Disneyland and be sure and check out that attraction. I got several comments about Mickey's Starland, Birthdayland, or Mickey's Toontown Fair, whatever you want to call it, because it had all of those incarnations along the way. 
And especially for Mickey and Minnie's country houses that they had there, where you could walk through Mickey's country house that it was being remodeled and Minnie's house where you could go and see her baking a cake and so forth and step into her kitchen. And it was really very cute and clever. It was never designed to be a permanent attraction or a permanent land for that matter. It was just intended to be there for Mickey's 60th birthday party. I've got several podcasts about this land and the uh, incarnations and the, that it, what it went through to get there. And it really was pretty cool. Uh, it's one of those interesting things. You know, it never really, I never really thought about much. It was like, oh, they could just take this out tomorrow and I would never miss it. And the thing is, they took it out and I actually miss it. You could, go, you could go meet Minnie Moo, the cow, or you could go into the, the Wiseacre Farms and go on Goofy's Barnstormer. But there was a lot of fun things there that just don't exist anymore. Next up, Spectromagic. This was the nighttime parade that debuted in the late 1980s. It went through the early 2000s before being replaced by, it was preceded by and replaced by the Main Street Electrical Parade. It was a really fun uh, look at, you know, sort of all the movies that Disney had with some fun colors and some fun rides and great music. Uh, this is one that I really miss. I had a personal connection to it being that I used to work in the Emporium and I worked a lot of night shifts. I used to see this parade every single night and I'd see it uh, when they'd run it uh, twice during a night. I'd see it both times. It really was pretty amazing and I really enjoyed it. Uh, and, you know, I, I still have the music every once in a while playing. I'll, I'll go and pull it out. In fact, I was listening to it earlier just because I was thinking about this podcast. And it really is something special. That was a really nice parade. In my opinion, for what it's worth, I thought it was better than uh, the Main Street Electrical Parade ever was. I thought it was more creative, had a little more oomph to it. And uh, I do miss it. And uh, like I said, I had a personal connection to it. So, And I knew some of the performers in the parade. So I guess that has some bearing on it, but I really do miss it. Next up, Snow White's Scary Adventure. Now, that's, this was one that was based on the uh, movie Snow White, but it really had nothing to do with Snow White. You were just traveling along in a car and seeing the witch, the Wicked Witch, turn and, turn and look at you and offer you an apple. And for kids, this was a terrifying ride. It wasn't fun. It wasn't, you know, really interesting. It was just sort of a scary look at Snow White's adventures. It was more like the Grimm Brothers tale than it was the Disney version of it, which is kind of funny the way Disney put it together, that they, interest, that they took it that way and made it interesting in that sense. You know, and it's one that nobody ever loved, but no one ever wanted to see go. And when it finally closed, everyone went, wow, it's finally closing? Oh, that's really sad. But you could always get on the attraction very quickly. There was never much of a wait. 
That space is currently being used for the Princess Storybook meet and greet. So it's right there by the carousel behind the uh, castle. Another one that came up several times, if you had wings. Now I've talked about this one at length and I did a podcast about it middle of last year or so. That was really kind of fun. This was this was one that was a freebie ride that, that Eastern Airlines had put together and funded. And it really was kind of cheap and hokey to a large degree. But yet it had so much life to it. There was something about the song, something about the way the Imagineers put it together that made it a lot of fun. And it really was quite a good attraction. It was very clever. And it was it was it became other things, the Dream Flight and whatever else. And currently you have Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger spin in that space. And, you know, that's good. And I like that attraction. But it really did have some oomph when it was talking about vacations and going on vacation and making it sort of this fun thing where you were thinking about places you could go and, oh, the things you would do. I got one vote. I got one person who who had two for me that I hadn't considered when I was putting together my list. And those are Mickey Mouse's Musical Review and The Walt Disney Story. Now, the Mickey Mouse Musical Review, that was the original attraction that was in the space where Mickey's Filler Magic is now. It was this sort of musical review where they brought together all of the characters who at that point were in the Disney Pantheon, and they all performed and sang different songs from their movies and different things like that. And they were all there on the stage mostly as audio animatronics. The three caballeros that were in that particular scene now appear over in Epcot in the Mexico Pavilion at the water ride they have there. So you can actually see those same three characters that they created back in the late 1960s are still on display. Now, at some point, they packed up the entirety of this show, the Mickey Mouse Review, and they shipped it over to to be in Disneyland Tokyo. And it, uh, it had a lot of run of success there, and then at some point they closed it and replaced it with something else. So then it just sort of disappeared. But it's one that was really kind of beloved by a lot of people who remember the early days of Walt Disney World and something, there was a certain charm to it when you had certain things like this. It was just sort of everybody together and just having fun. And it was kind of capturing the spirit of Walt Disney himself because he had all these characters and this richness he had created. And they were putting them all together in a stage to tell us a quick story. And the second part of that one was the Walt Disney story. Now, this is the original Walt Disney story that appeared on Main Street right near the entrance on the side closer to where the contemporary is. So it was uh, right there. There's now a gift shop there. It's behind the exposition hall. And uh, that was actually the Walt Disney story. And it was kind of fun because it was always some little props and memorabilia from the Walt Disney's history, sort of like they have in One Man's Dream over in the studios today. But then you went in and you heard the whole story of Walt Disney. It wasn't edited in any way. It was sort of the way Disney wanted to present, the way the company wanted to present Walt Disney to you to tell you who he was and what he was all about. And I'm going to have to do a more detailed retrospective about this particular attraction because it really was something special. But uh, I was glad somebody put it on the list because I thought that was kind of neat. So that does it for the Magic Kingdom. Now let's take a look at Epcot. The original Journey Into Your Imagination was one of the more intriguing rides. And it really did think about imagination in a much deeper sense. And I really do need to give this one its due and talk about it in some greater detail. So that's coming in the future, I'm sure. Um, People loved it. And it showed up on the list several times. People asking, hey, I love this one. People asking to put that on the list. There was also outside of it, there was a Figment meet and greet uh, where the Dreamfinder and Figment would meet people and actually uh, take pictures and talk to them and have some fun. There were actually two different people who played the Dreamfinder over the years, starting in 1982. Uh, going until about, I think it was 99 or so, when they finally stopped doing the uh, the meet with him. 
and Figment right around the time that they changed the uh, the attraction for the first time. And it was kind of kind of neat. It was very clever. It was cute. Uh, it was kind of a fun thing that they did. And uh, really, Figment was just the the person's arm, and he had it inside there. So he was puppeting the uh, the Figment character, and he had a fake arm around the outside of it. It was very very cute the way they did that. Another one that came up on the list, Body Wars. This is another simulator type ride that was inside the Wonders of Life Pavilion over on the other side of Epcot, uh, back by where Universe of Energy is, where Horizons was. And uh, this was a, a ride that was very similar in concept to the way that they did Star Tours. You're in a car, in a vehicle, in seats, and you're watching a screen in front of you and you're interacting with the screen. So very similar in that sense. And again, the entirety of the Wonders of Life Pavilion deserves its own special attention in a podcast to go through everything that was there because it was one of the more interesting things that happened, the way it got developed and the way it ended. Uh, So it's worth spending a little time on. Living with the Land came up a couple of times. Now you still have Living with the Land, but Listen to the Land was was the original attraction that was there. And you would have a person who was guiding you on the tour, a live person who would talk to you about the aquaculture, about the uh, things they were growing and so forth, as you were going through the greenhouses. And it really was more interesting to hear the live action version of it because they would give you more interactive types of things rather than a pre-recorded thing. So they would tell you about everything that you were seeing there. And as things would change, they could talk about them and they could talk about very specific things. They could answer questions, and it was a much more fascinating ride with a live person. Now, of course, the script always varied from person to person, and some people were better than others, and some people were just there to have a good time, and some people were actually trying to educate in some way. But it really was a lot of fun to go on that attraction and listen to the live person who would take you through the entirety of the show and tell you everything that was happening there at Walt Disney's Epcot and how they were growing and learning about how to grow crops better and how to do things more efficiently. And it was really kind of interesting. And it was presented originally by Kraft and then by the Nestle company. And both of them had an educational perspective and an outreach perspective where they were teaching you about things that you might want to know. Next up was the World of Motion and Test Track. So the original attraction, World of Motion, and then its direct descendant, the Test Track, and the original cue that went along with that. Now, I've talked about both on previous podcasts and how it, the incarnation kind of grew along. People missed both of those. And uh, I think um, if I were to take what I read from different people, I would say that if I were going to vote on the two, more people missed the old Test Track than missed World of Motion. Test Track was a little bit more interactive and interesting. World of Motion was a little more whimsical. But um, I think people bi- missed both, and I got comments about both, and I was, thought that was kind of interesting that uh, pe- I got some comments around both of them. A few people missed the Mickey hand over Spaceship Earth. Now, I know that sounds kind of trivial, but some people recognize that as truly Disney. And that was one of the memorable things that people said, hey, I got pictures of that. I remember my first trip. I remember a special trip where I saw that hand and it's not there anymore and I miss it. And the Mickey hand was placed there for the Millennium Celebration in 2000 and was up there for about, I want to say it was almost 10 years, I think, uh, the length of time they had it up there. And it was a uh, Mickey hand holding a wand and it was over Spaceship Earth. And it was clever, but I didn't think it fit with the theme of what Epcot was personally. But that doesn't mean I didn't like it, just that it uh, I didn't think it fit in exactly. 
A few people commented on Horizons specifically, and of course, you know, I love that attraction. It was one of my all-time favorites. I did a multi-multi-part series. I think it might have been four parts or five parts or something ridiculous like that. Early on in my uh, Disney View podcast, you can go and check it out. But it's really kind of a fascinating attraction, and it really was something kind of fun. And I really miss Horizons, and I agree with you. Thanks for bringing that one up. One more, the Kitchen Cabaret. Uh, that was the attraction in the other part of the Land Pavilion, where uh, back where Soren is today. And that one was the uh, Kitchen Cabaret, which was a nutritional-type fun show where they were talking about the different food groups and nutrition and different things like that, and it was a lot of fun. It was kind of an interesting look at uh, how, you know, how you can take basic food stuff and make it kind of fun. And I think that was the nature of what Epcot was all about. And I think that's why people miss that. It had a catchy couple of songs. It was kind of fun. It was entertaining. And it took you down a kind of a fun ride talking about uh, different food groups. And, you know, just something so simple, yet Disney made it so much fun. And it was totally memorable. And uh, it was catchy. And you learned a little something along the way. And then, of course, the last one in Epcot would be the Maelstrom. The Maelstrom was the attraction that was in uh, Norway, the Norway Pavilion. It was the only thrill ride in all of Epcot for the longest time. And uh, it, uh, it was actually the, um, the, presented about the Vikings and Norway and the history of Norway and so forth. And it's currently been redone to be the Anna and Elsa uh, Frozen ride. So while I appreciate that there's the Frozen ride, I really do miss the Maelstrom. I appreciate you folks who uh, voted for the Maelstrom. I agree with you. We missed that one a lot. Turning over to the studios. Number one thing, and I think it was the number one thing overall across everything in Disney property, is the Osborne family of lights. Now, uh, I did talk about this on a previous podcast. I've gone into some great detail about what the Osborne lights are, but essentially down New York Street and around the corner into the uh, streets of America, they would put up tons and tons and tons, millions in fact, of Christmas lights. And they would sync them up to music, and they would do different things in there. They had 3D glasses they'd offer. Lots of different things to make it very, very fun and interactive. It was a fun way and festive way to celebrate the holiday season. And unfortunately, when Disney decided to take out the uh, New York Street and change everything around, that was lost to history. And there's been talk about it being resurrected perhaps as early as this year, somewhere else outside of one of the parks. We'll see if that actually comes to pass, but it's really kind of one of those things that I think everyone misses, everyone remembers. It's just, it was so spectacular. If you ever went in there at night, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It just had a certain wonderful charm to it, the way they put it together. Another thing that people miss is the magic of Disney animation. This was a, it was a walk-on attraction where you would go through and they would talk about how to make an animated film and what it took to make an animated film. And then once you left the movie area where they talked about it, you would go in and actually watch the animators actually inking the paper and then painting it. So you would actually see them making the cells for an animated movie. Now, by the time it opened in the early, uh, in the late 1980s, it was already a little bit past its time. We had already started to move to computer animation and things were moving along much greater at a much greater pace and uh, the hand-drawn characters were starting to already see their end coming. That's not to say there aren't still artists and people drawing and doing some things, but we're doing it more efficiently than the original notion of the way Disney created uh, Mickey Mouse and all the characters with the actual animators and doing some things. That kind of went away. And unfortunately, it kind of outlived its usefulness as Disney started to evolve into more uh, computer-generated things and finding ways to make cheaper animation by outsourcing some of the work. 
Not all of it, but certainly some of it. But that uh, Magic of Disney animation was located back where their Star Wars launch bay is now, and it was a really kind of a fun way to go in and learn a little bit more about how Disney did its animation. And it harkened back to how Disney originally got started with his, uh, his animation and how his animators actually worked, because you got a sense of what it was like to sit at the desk and do the work. People talking about the uh, studio backlot tour. The whole tour was kind of interesting, but the thing that cost, caught most attention was the walking portion of the tour that was in the early part, where you walk through and you saw some of the things that were there. There were props. This was how they made a movie. This is how they did different things. And you learned a lot about movie making in a very simple and not elaborate way. You just learned some of the simple ways that they made movies. And it was kind of interesting and it was fun to walk back there, see the props, learn a little bit about movie making and see how the magic was done. And that reminds me, uh, you know, when you think about it, you, you realize that it was a, it was a quasi, I would say it was a almost real working movie studio. They did make movies there, but they didn't make as many as they wanted to. And that had as much to do with Florida tax laws and how much uh, subsidy they could present to people to produce movies in Florida as opposed to California or anywhere else. So it was, uh, they were making movies there, but it didn't, never grew the way they wanted it to. And so they kind of lost out on that. And that's part of the reason it's lo it lost its way and they wound up changing it from a real working movie studio to something else and eventually evolving into what it's going to be next with Star Wars land, the Pixar land and everything. So being a real working movie studio, they had some replicas of facades for some of the houses that were famous in the movie industry. And you'd see them from the front and they'd look like the facade you'd see on TV or in a movie. And you go around the back and you'd see that they were truly just a facade and they were backed by just wood held up. And not unlike New York Street, which is also gone, this was a way to kind of show you how movies were made and how the magic happens. And they're giving you the illusion of some sort of space when it's really just a 2D space they've created to look like what they want it to look like. And I think some people miss that too, you know, that piece of it where it feels like it's something more, right? You, you actually got a sense of what the movies were all about. Another thing people miss is the uh, sorcerer hat in the uh, middle of the studios. Now, I never thought it fit in there. I always thought it looked kind of goofy sitting in the middle of it, but I understand why people liked it. It felt like it was another thing that was your, your, um, your main draw. It was your focal point where people would look at it and go, oh, cool, you know, there's the sorcerer hat. And it does fit in with the thematics of what we were talking about with a movie studio. So I understand why it was there. I just never really kind of got, you know, the nature of it. Two other things that I got some that got a little bit of love were the Monster Sound Show and the Superstar Television. These were two interactive type attractions where you could learn more about movie making, and uh, they were kind of fun. You learned a little bit more about how the sound effects happen in movies, and you learned a little bit more about how movies are actually made and how you do certain things and you have certain ways of creating uh, the movie itself and kind of how you can interact into it. It's it, they were kind of fun, and again. I'll have to talk about these in some greater detail in the future. Over in the Animal Kingdom, there actually wasn't too much that's been taken out that people really missed. The one thing I got some comments about was Camp Minnie Mickey. This was just an area where the Festival of the Lion King was originally housed, and you had some character meet and greet trails where you could walk up and meet Mickey and Minnie and several other characters throughout the day. And there really was never much of a line and they were very interactive and it was always kind of nice to go in there. And I always enjoyed going back there. There was a certain calm and quiet of going back there that made it kind of fun. It's been replaced. That entire section has been replaced with Avatar Land. So you no longer have Camp Minnie Mickey. 
and the Festival of the Lion King has a permanent facility that's up behind where where the Africa section is, which makes sense. So it all still is there. Uh, that part of it is still there, but the rest of it is gone. Now, I also got some comments about things outside the parks that people miss. So th- I thought this was kind of interesting. Some people suggested that they miss being able to ride up front in the monorail. Now, as I've talked about in the past, they used to elect guests. You could ask if you wanted to, to ride up front. They could accommodate up to six guests in the front of the monorail. And you could sit up there with the driver and you could see the actual track that you were taking. You could see where you were going. It was kind of fun. It was like, you know, being in the front seat of a car, right? Where you could actually see where you were going. I love doing this. This is one of my favorite things to do. I would do it every time I went. But unfortunately, after the accident they had a few years ago, uh, they had to change the characterization of their uh, monorail system as being a public transit system rather than being an attraction, and in which case you can't ask to go up front anymore. So uh, they can't allow anybody to go in there, much like you can't go in the front of a plane or the front of a bus, right? You, have, you can't talk to the driver while they're driving. So uh, I understand it, I get it, and I miss it. Uh, now, if you want to still be able to go up with the driver... You can go to Disneyland because in the Disneyland monorail, it was not reclassified. It is still an attraction and you can still ask to go up front if you want to. Several people commented about Pleasure Island and the entirety of Pleasure Island and missing the fun aspect of Pleasure Island. And I agree with them. I spent many an evening at Pleasure Island. I loved it. I had such a great time there. Um, I think the Disney Springs area is very nice. It's very much like a mall that you'd see in any town anymore. It doesn't have that charm, that sort of feeling to it anymore where it feels like it's separate and different and Disney. It just feels like a mall. And uh, so, you know, I kind of miss Pleasure Island and I see their point. I got a couple of comments about McDonald's fries. For a while, the Disney Corporation and McDonald's had an agreement where uh, McDonald's would have a couple of outposts around Disney property where they could sell McDonald's fries on Disney property. So within theme parks, you could get McDonald's fries. And I never really got this whole relationship. I always wanted to go to Disney and be away from the everyday, to not have McDonald's, to not have other things, to see different things, taste different things, have something different. But Disney has moved in a different direction and decided that they need to have different companies come in and manage their restaurants and so forth. And I get that. I'm totally cool with that. But it just felt like the branded thing that you know outside the parks didn't really fit inside the parks. So this one I disagree with, but I certainly see people's points. It really does have a special relationship. And uh, people love it. And I I get it. I just I don't agree with it. Now, on the other hand, as I look at uh, McDonald's fries, one of the reasons for the relationship between Disney and McDonald's had to do with the T-Rex named Sue. Now, you can see the replica of Sue over in the Animal Kingdom, right in front of the dinosaur Countdown to Extinction attraction. Sue is the largest and most complete T-Rex ever found. So, Sue was found in North Dakota. The Field Museum in Chicago is the one that purchased Sue and was going to put her on display to the public. They came to an agreement with Disney to clean up Sue and get her ready to display at Disney's Animal Kingdom in the dinosaur area. So they were working on all the bones there. It was sponsored by McDonald's. It's an expensive proposition to get the uh, dinosaur cleaned up. So the uh, McDonald's Corporation put a lot of money into it. Disney also put some money into it. Disney cleaned it up. So you could walk by and you could actually watch them cleaning the bones as they were getting ready to go on display. Then they made casts of all the bones. The originals were sent off to Chicago for the Field Museum. And the copies were all kept at, at Disney and put on display in the Animal Kingdom. That's where you see Sue. And that's a replica that's there. 
McDonald's, in return, was able to merchandise and sell some of their French fries at various outposts. That's how it all came together. And it's really kind of an interesting thing. And it was a win all the way around. Like I said, I don't agree with them selling French fries, but hey, it all worked out pretty well. Uh, another thing I heard about was American Express's white glove treatment. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with the white glove treatment, American Express, the credit issuer, uh, offered a, had a relationship with Disney to be the official card of Walt Disney World for many, many years. And uh, what they would do is if you would book through, I think it was through American Express Travel, they would um, give you the white glove treatment. It included some discounts like uh, 15% savings on merchandise, 10% off at lunch at a couple of places, 20% off of Disney Quest, 10% off of a couple of other restaurants. Uh, there was, I think there was a uh, gift card they gave you. If you bought a certain classification of hotel, they'd give you a fanny pack, you know, one of these uh, hip packs that you could put things in. They gave you a lanyard with a special white glove treatment pin. And there was some other things that they would throw in at various times. So not unlike the uh, Disney rewards visa card that they have now, this was kind of a similar proposition where they would offer you some things just because you were purchasing through the American Express card because that was the nature of the relationship. Now, I think the newer version is similar, maybe not as maybe not quite as good, but I think what you get if you go through DVC, you get something very similar. Um, I think it's, you know, you start to see some of the similarities come out there too. I think what happened over time, just my personal opinion, is that some of these features went away because Disney figured out how to offer them themselves through their own brands and property rather than offering them through a third-party credit card. So that's just my take on it. Uh, another thing that came up was lower cost or affordable DVC points. When DVC first opened, you could rent points through them and the point cost was really not that high. You could actually buy points at a fairly low cost. So you could stay at one of these DVC properties for fairly little money. Not unlike the days when the hotels were only like 40 or $50 for a night, you could get DVC points and stay at a little bit nicer hotel, something closer to a deluxe resort for fairly little money. So it, uh, I think people missed that. That kind of went away and that's unfortunate. You know, the, the interest rose and the uh, kind of the price point rose with it. And that's true of any of the hotel properties. I mean, it's hard now. Once in a while, as a uh, Florida resident, I can get a hotel at one of the All-Stars for like $99, which is double the price I was paying for it less than 20 years ago. So it's kind of funny to see, you know, balance it and go, wow, I can't, you know, you can't get a value the same way you used to because the price point keeps going up. A couple of people pointed out the yellow ponchos that they used to have at uh, the Disney parks. Yes, <laughs> those were great. Mickey Mouse was on the back of them. They were yellow ponchos, and they said Walt Disney World on them. Today's all have like a picture of a castle or a Mickey or a something that say Disney Parks, and it's a little bit more vague in that sense. The yellow ponchos with, with Mickey on the back were really kind of special, and they would say Walt Disney World, and they were totally, they were ubiquitous. You would see them absolutely everywhere. Everyone had one. And uh, I remember working the rain cage and getting them out on display for people so that we could sell them. There'd be a rainstorm coming. We'd start getting the, the pallets of them out. You know, you'd get boxes and send them out to every location you could possibly get to. Uh, so that way you could sell these, uh, these ponchos. So yes, I remember those so well. Um, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun to deal with those. And, uh, you know, I kind of miss those. Uh, you know, the other ones, they're, they're now this uh, PVC material instead of this uh, you know, sort of, they used to be made of a different material, so they had a different feel to them and a different smell, too, uh, with the older versions that they used to have that were yellow. 
Two other things that came up, Discovery Island and River Country, both over by where Fort Wilderness is roughly. And uh, River Country was a good old-fashioned swimming hole that was eventually replaced by Blizzard Beach and Typhoon Lagoon. I'm going to have to talk about River Country at some point and some of the uh, history of it and how we got here and where we went with it and so forth. Uh, and the Discovery Island was a zoological park. It was a certified zoological park that you could get to by launch from the Contemporary or the uh, Fort Wilderness. And you could go out there and you could see different animals and so forth that they had on display. And that was really kind of an interesting place. Uh, it was kind of fun. I think it was like 50 cents or a buck to go over there or something. They moved most of the animals over to the Animal Kingdom when they opened it. And now that part of the park is abandoned. And uh, we'll have to talk about that on a future podcast too. Some people missed uh, the dining plan where everything was included. And uh, I know the dining plan has changed a lot over the years, but the dining plan used to include everything. You would buy the dining plan or uh, you could get it or if sometimes it was free and you'd get all these different things and you'd you'd wind up with some really tremendous value for uh, what you paid for the dining plan to be able to get some great things and be able to uh, not have to pay for everything a la carte. You got desserts, you got breakfasts, you got lunches, you got dinners, you got uh, snacks, you got everything. You were well fed while you were there. A lot of people kind of lament the loss of the kind of the charm of walking straight in the park. In the old days, you would basically walk up. If you came to Epcot, the studios or the Animal Kingdom, you would just walk up. You would see the entrance and you would just walk right. And uh, people miss that. The ability to just walk right in without having to go through security. Now, in many ways, I'm glad that the Magic Kingdom moved security further out. So that way, when you get off the monorail, you can just walk right in the park. You've already gone through security. It kind of solves that problem in a different way. But... I do miss that in a large, to a large degree as well. And finally, <laughs> this one's kind of funny. This was, uh, there was one person who specifically said she missed Clarabelle the cow. Now, I have seen Clarabelle around a few times, but Clarabelle is one of those characters who's long lost to Disney history, but still appears occasionally in different places. Um, Clarabelle uh, does appear specifically at Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party on a float that, surprisingly and amusingly, smells like hot chocolate. And uh, that's the one place you, uh, you can always find her if you go looking for her. Occasionally, you'll find her other places. If you use the app, uh, Disney's own app, you can go looking for her. Sometimes she does come out at different, different places. Not very often, but I have seen her a couple of times. You have to kind of look for her a little bit. So there you go. That is your list of the things that you miss at Walt Disney World. I thought it was a pretty good list. I was pretty impressed by it. Uh, you all came through and uh, really came up with some very clever things. You know, I missed, uh, I missed a lot of them. I mean, Gary and I were only talking about our own top 10, and I probably could have gone on for hours talking about the rest of them. But you guys captured a lot of them. So kudos to all of you. And thanks for you know, sending me back feedback about some of the things that you miss at Disney Parks. Uh, some of the things that you miss at Walt Disney World. It's its just kind of funny how, you know, we wind up missing these things over time and things change and evolve and we don't always have the same things that we once had. But I'm glad to see that we still have the memories of them and we still have, YouTube provides a wonderful source of having videos of a lot of the things that are out there. And of course, we have a lot of the music stored up in different places. I've got a lot of it on CD uh, from different places of the music of parks and so forth. So it's great to be able to capture that and still be able to enjoy it. So that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. 
Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.